This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions to provide you with information that you can trust will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by the Catholic Church. Today, our main interview will be that of Dr. John Rice, a pediatrician from South Bend, Indiana, who is also president of the St. Andre Bassett Catholic Medical Guild of North Central Indiana. But before we get to that part of the show, we're first going to go through some interesting news from the world of medicine. Well, Tom, I have recently been uh, notified of an article that came out in the New York Times, and I was pleased to find out that the New York Times has discovered that (laughs) birth control pills leads to an increased risk of breast cancer. Wait a second. Hormones are related to breast cancer? I always thought this wasn't true. That's what they taught me in medical school. They said birth control is good for you. If anything, it helps. It couldn't hurt you in any way. But now the New York Times has the gall to come out and say that birth control pills may lead to an increased risk of breast cancer. Fascinating. Fascinating work. It's always nice when we see a study done that confirms what we knew to be true. And in fact, in the article, they say it was known to be true before, but I don't know if they ever were on record of saying that. It's really incredible because they say we knew this to be true before and we were really hoping that it might not be true with the newer medicines. The older ones were bad. The new ones are better. Uh, Turns out the new ones aren't better. And there's not one that's better than the other. They're all bad. And they're quoting an article that came out published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was a relatively small study population. Wait, no, it wasn't. It was actually an entire country. It was all (laughs) the adult women in Denmark followed for a relatively short period of time? No, for almost 11 years each. 1.8 million women followed for 11 years. This is a robust data set. And they found out that on average, the risk of breast cancer for a woman increased about 20% if she had used oral contraceptives. And what's more, they found out that the longer they used them, the higher the risk became. In fact, if they had used it over 10 years the risk was increased 38%, so almost double that of the average user of birth control pills. And the longer they were off of it did not reduce their risk, whereas the longer you stop smoking, your lung cancer risk goes down. It did not happen with breast cancer in this study. You know what's amazing? We've known for many years, and some of the listeners may be familiar with the Nurses' Health Study, which looked at hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women. And right away, we identified an increased risk of breast cancer in those women taking uh, hormones for postmenopausal therapy. And didn't they think it was mostly just the estrogens back then? Well, it isn't clear. The data is hard to understand because it's commingled patients. Some of the patients were on one kind of an estrogen versus another kind. Some of them took synthetic progesterones with them. But there was never much doubt that hormone replacement therapy did carry some increased risk of breast cancer in those women. Yet we refused to even believe that in younger women, the very same hormones actually know much higher doses of hormones could be related to breast cancer. Well, and that was one of the things that I thought was most telling about this new article was that they asserted that even the progestins, the progesterone-like birth control pills and IUD devices that release that hormone, even those increase breast cancer, whereas it has always been said that it was only the estrogen. So now really none of the hormone-releasing contraceptive or sterilization options really are safe from this risk. You know, what I'm seeing increasingly is that people are concerned about what they're consuming in terms of foods, and they're worried about hormones in the chicken uh, and hormones in their beef. And increasingly, I think patients, astute patients, are starting to say, I should think twice about what I'm putting in my body that's called a medicine. I always thought that it was interesting that, you know, recently even the American Academy of Pediatrics for children recommend intrauterine devices to, to stop teen pregnancy. And they've always been, you know, advocated for instead of the pill because the risks were supposedly lower. But that's blown out of the water with this study, too. It says even the IUDs that release hormones. And we'll get to ask our guest today, uh, Dr. Rice, about that very subject, which has been hot in the area of pediatrics. But over 10 years ago, in the Mayo Clinic proceedings, there was an article published that was a meta-analysis that is looking at a number of different studies on how breast cancer is influenced by oral contraceptives. And this study showed, again, 
about a 20% increased risk, particularly for premenopausal breast cancer. Can you comment on that, Chris? It's frightening. Uh, you know, we know what we know, and yet we don't, uh, we, we don't practice what we know, um, and it's frustrating. And at the risk of sounding cynical, we have to follow the money in some of these issues. And many, almost five, seven years ago, there was a study that looked at the contraceptive market in general. It's somewhere around a $12 billion a year industry. And so you can imagine that that's enough money that really can affect advertisements and, and public opinion. Well, and out of all the things that really get our attention as physicians, we have new studies. I'm thinking of blood pressure that come out all the time. It should be a bit higher. It should be a bit lower. This is high. This is low. We're talking about 3% differences, 7%. Not 20 and 40% increased risk. That's a no-brainer. I think most people would say, uh, if presented the option, if I drive this brand of car, there's a 20% chance that I'll die. They probably wouldn't buy that brand of car. <laughs> That's a really good point. Uh, another interesting thing that older Mayo Clinic study was that your risk of breast cancer before menopause is increased 44% if you used the birth control pills before a first pregnancy, and if you use the birth control pills at least four years or more before a first pregnancy, your risk for breast cancer went up 52%. And yet, don't members of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology still say, well, it's the best thing we have? Sadly, you're, you're right. Uh, and it's incredibly frustrating. But I, I think it's worth pointing out, we're, we're not advocating that, um, that, that every couple should have a large family. It is perfectly acceptable and in keeping with church teaching for a couple to decide they shouldn't have children at all or they shouldn't have more children. And there are healthy, safe, ethical ways um, to not achieve pregnancy between man and woman. And, and surprisingly, in that New York Times article, they quote uh, an Oxford England physicians saying that this new study did not find that any modern contraceptives were risk-free. But they don't mention NFP, natural family planning, which is risk-free in terms of health damage. Well, the only risk that NFP using couples face is the relationship may actually get a lot better. And wouldn't that be wonderful, as you are listening to Dr. Doctor, where we discuss health matters because people matter on Redeemer Radio. Andrew? Well, Tom, I've got another one of my preventative medicine tips And we today. love those. Lay it on us. Well, this is from our favorite governmental organization, the USPSTF. Easy another for you to say, of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another one of their recommendations, and this one comes all the way out of 2012, and it states that vitamin D supplementation is important, especially in community-dwelling adults who are older than 65 who are at increased risk of falls. They should be supplemented with vitamin D. What other kind of adults out are there if they're not community-dwelling, Andrew? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I think that the thing that they're driving at is our, our listeners and patients who reside in assisted living or nursing homes. But ah. my thought would be that the recommendation could be extrapolated to people even outside of the nursing homes. How much do they need? Well, that's a good question. I, I guess it brings me to my, my usual way of discussing these things, my top three things you need to know. And so my first thing in regard to vitamin D supplementation is that there's many causes of low vitamin D. Some of the most common ones are being homebound, limited light exposure, decreased intake of vitamin D or absorption into the body through the intestines. Even decreased effectiveness um, from obesity can lead to low vitamin D and increased breakdown of the vitamin D. Wow. Well, that could be common in those people. What other tip do you have for us? Tip number two is that it's not as clear-cut as you might think. Vitamin D supplementation is actually kind of controversial on a lot of different levels. How much is important to supplement? What's a normal level? How many people are actually low and symptomatic? We know that most people, if you test them and they're low, they are asymptomatic. They don't have symptoms. So there's really good evidence is lacking in how best to supplement. So the basis for what is the low normal level is really in question. We don't know what normal is, and if you change that normal level, you could have more or less people who are 
have inadequate levels. But if they don't have symptoms, are they really low? It, it really depends who you ask. You know, when you look at the huge studies, it's hard to tell how much benefit there is. But anecdotally, individual patients may find drastic benefits from getting supplementation. Usually the main reason I recommend it is for bone health. For bone health, and that would be especially in women, although even some men can get osteoporosis or thinning of the bones. Is that correct? That's correct. It's increasing risk with age, women greater than men, largely because of their hormone profile. Ah, uh, yes. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm seeing pediatricians recommending breastfeeding moms to take vitamin D for the baby. That's right. And it seems like every day in the scientific literature, there's something else about the virtue of vitamin D. You know, it's it's inexpensive. It isn't harmful, and it may help a lot of things. That sounds like a good deal. It's definitely something that there has not been linked to damage. There's a theoretical <laughs> risk of taking too much because it's a fat-soluble vitamin. I've never met somebody with hypervitaminosis D, although I was tested on it. Now, isn't uh, vitamin D too water-soluble? Uh, it should still be fat-soluble, although it, it's ingested differently and absorbed differently. After vitamin D gets into your body, it's stored in the fat. And isn't it true that the majority of our vitamin D comes from the interaction with sun on our skin? It and depends how, how fair a skin you are, right? Because, right. Tom, you could probably tell us about folks with darker skin have a harder time, don't they? They do. The favorite study I like to quote to people about getting sun for vitamin D is one done in Hawaii among surfers who are young adult males and females. They average 29 hours a week in Hawaiian sunlight. Half of them were vitamin deficient. You can't get it all from sunlight. So don't go to a tanning bed to get it. Don't try to sit outside to get it. Your daily going to and from your car out for walks is enough to get what you need. And if you have dark skin, you block a lot of those rays anyway, so you're going to have to get it from food and supplements if you're not getting enough in the food. And that brings me to my third point, is that it is actually okay to replace vitamin D without necessarily tracking it very closely if you use the right doses. So I recommend vitamin D3 over vitamin D2 and at least 800 IUs daily of vitamin D along with a minimum of 1,200 milligrams daily of calcium. You may need more depending on how severe the deficiency is and at the higher doses you should check, but even for the average listener without checking, it's safe to do 800 a day. That's our preventive medicine tip of the day from Dr. Andrew Mullally. And to end this quarter of the show, I'll ask my medical trivia question of the day, which is, what is the biblical name applied to the anatomic landmark known as the thyroid cartilage? And why is it important? That answer and more coming to you after the break on Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio. If you are just joining us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing the good Dr. John Rice from South Bend, Indiana. Dr. Rice is a graduate of Notre Dame University, Indiana University School of Medicine, as well as a pediatric residency in Indianapolis at the Indiana University School of Medicine. And, and John, you're also the president of the Catholic Medical Guild in North Central Indiana. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you, uh, Tom and Andrew. I'm uh, happy to be uh, on your show, and I uh, look forward to speaking with your audience tonight. Now, you come from an auspicious family. Your father was a famous constitutional lawyer, professor at Notre Dame. You have some high-achieving brothers and sisters. What is it that drew you particularly to the field of medicine? Well, that's interesting because uh, I do come from a family full of lawyers. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only physician in my among all my siblings. I've always had a more of a technical bent, and I've enjoyed... Uh, solving problems. Um, in fact, as I finished high school and was applying to college, I was really leaning much more towards going into engineering. Uh -huh. I wanted to design and build airplanes. And so, did you ever uh, design or build an airplane? I, I have never designed it. Well, I've designed and built some little paper airplanes, but um, <laughs> nothing that anybody could fly in. And instead, I've devoted my life to caring for the people that would fly inside those airplanes. Oh, good for you. Now, what was it that honed your focus to pediatrics among all the medical areas of expertise? 
Well, I think as I as I looked at moving from a, a very highly technical field like engineering into something like medicine, medicine has much more of an, an orientation towards people, much more direct interaction with people, and I think a much more direct influence on, on people's lives. My experience as being the oldest of 10 children and all of my summer jobs through high school and college were with children. Uh, it made me lean much more towards pediatrics once I did decide on medicine. And as I studied both pre-medical and medical studies, I found that the technical aspects of the pediatric patient were much more interesting to me. The growth and the fascinating amount of development that a, a child goes through, particularly during the first year, but throughout the entire scope of childhood, uh, is something that you find nowhere else in medicine. That's true. And what does a pediatrician do every day? What's a typical day like for you in South Bend working as a pediatrician? Well, in one sense, there are no typical days because each day is unique. I may see the same kinds of things every day, but it's a different group of patients, a different family, different situations that they bring to me. But my, my usual day includes both hospital rounds in the morning, seeing newborns at both hospitals in town. And that's an enjoyable part of the job, seeing new families in those first hours and first days of their child's life. And that's a, an event that the families will look back on years later. The mothers will point to the six-foot-tall teenager and say, <laughs> he saw you and he held you when, he was, when you were just this big. But it is an enjoyable part of the day. And then I spend the rest of the day in the office seeing patients for both well-child exams and uh, acute visits. I, having been practicing for a number of years, have acquired some administrative obligations, both within our multi-specialty group and at both hospitals. So I end up going to meetings either in the evening or during the day as well. So how many hours a day in the morning are you in the hospital, and then how many hours a day are you seeing patients in the clinic? Uh, in the hospital, may maybe an hour or so a day. It depends on how many babies I have to see, and then I'm in the, the clinic the rest of the day. So the vast majority of my, my job is outpatient. Now, Dr. Rice, so you're a pediatrician, so you specialize in little children and the oldest of 10 kids. So when Jesus tells us we have to become like little children... What, what do you think he's talking about? <laughs> I don't think he wants us all to be two-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> I think what, what he's looking at and, and asking us to look at when we see children is not the temper tantrums or the, the neediness, but also but really that purity, that innocence that children bring, and, and to some degree the, the dependence that they bring. Children are not able to do everything for themselves, and they depend on, on others, their parents particularly, just as we humans depend on, on God for our very existence. So I think it's the, that innocence, that, that dependence, that relationship that he's asking us to contemplate. Now, Dr. Rice, I know that you're a busy pediatrician. You've described a very busy day and a busy father with, with I believe, seven children of your own. Is that right? Seven children, yes. So where in the scope of all this time do you find time to, to serve as the president of the local Catholic Medical Guild? I sometimes ask myself the same question. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're the founding president, right? Tell, tell us about how, how you were moved to found that guild and, and what that's entailed. Well, I've been a member of the Catholic Medical Association for many years since, I believe, shortly after finishing residency, but for a long time there was really no active presence of the Catholic Medical Association in our area. So my, my membership was really limited to looking at what the CMA was doing from afar. The Catholic Medical Association fills a great need in the medical profession and, and for myself personally. The need that it fills is that it offers physicians in this morally challenging climate, it offers physicians a chance to form themselves according to the Catholic faith, to receive support from other physicians who believe and practice in the same way, and 
to come together as a group to bring some influence into the community, the medical community and the community at large, and even into, as all those groups can come together in the national organization, to have an effect nationwide. Did, so the, the Catholic Medical Association fills a, a great need. When Bishop Rhodes asked a number of us to form the Guild, it was one of those things that I couldn't not do, just because it is such an important organization. Now, many of our listeners have heard of South Bend, Indiana, because of another little Catholic school over there. Did, did you find that the, the land of the Golden Dome was fertile soil for the Catholic Medical Association? A number of our members are Notre Dame graduates. We are also working on a partnership with various groups within the university. The university turns out about 300 pre-medical students every year who are going to go to medical schools all over the country. And some of those graduates end up coming back to South Bend. There's a, a great attraction for Notre Dame graduates to come back here. So it selfishly informing the medical students also helps us form future physicians in our own community. But it is a, a great service that we can provide. There are also residents at both hospitals in town and medical students from the IU system who are based in town for both their clinical and preclinical years. So we have a number of opportunities to work with uh, students at various levels of education. You know, one of the things that I was really impressed by recently was a news article that I saw from a local South Bend news outlet regarding the CMA Guild and some of its members standing up at a city council meeting about there's, I guess there's an abortion clinic that's trying to start in South Bend and some of your guild members showed up and were able to testify against that movement. Is that correct? Yes, we had, there were a total of about eight or nine physicians who testified and the majority, I think six or so of the physicians are active members of our guild. So it was a, a strong showing for the Catholic Medical Guild and and I was able to testify particularly as a representative of the CMA and provide the official viewpoint of both our organization and the, the larger national organization as it relates to the sanctity of life and the need to protect the health of both women and unborn children. John, you're doing just the right thing getting out there in the public square with you and your fellow CMA members. I'm so happy to hear that. But maybe our listeners don't understand why is it important for you and your guild members to start getting together with some of the pre-med students from Notre Dame? The, the moral and ethical landscape that a student has to navigate through medical school is a, a very treacherous one. Even if a student is well-formed in the college years, once they get medical school, almost all of the medical schools in the country, with few exceptions, are secular schools. And even some of the Catholic medical schools will still, the students will still encounter some challenges to their faith. As they are trained uh, medically, the anti-life ethic so pervades their medical training that it almost becomes second nature to them unless they're on their guard and well-prepared to understand and articulate the, the Catholic view, the Catholic truth, the truth itself, not just the Catholic truth, but the truth about who we are as human beings and how human beings deserve to be treated. And that is so true, and we hope that this pilot program at Notre Dame can be spread throughout the country through the good work of you and your guild. There is something else I learned recently at Notre Dame, which brought home a topic near and dear to my heart, that is a physician burnout. And I was talking to Father Foster, who oversees the pre-med students at Notre Dame. And after discussing it, he said, uh, shockingly, that he sees symptoms in, of burnout in most of the pre-med students leaving Notre Dame. The process of even applying to medical school is a rigorous one. And, and it's one that, that focuses very heavily on academic achievement, but also filling up the application with volunteer work, with laboratory work, 
with service projects. Um, and uh, to put all of that together and try to have a normal college life can be very stressful for a student. And it, it's sometimes hard when a student is trying to do all those things necessary to get into medical school, sometimes hard for them to keep their eye on the real target, which is not only becoming a physician, but becoming a Catholic physician, a physician who practices and approaches his patients with all of the truth of the Catholic faith behind him. Uh, it can be very easy to lose sight of that and become focused just on the, the details that are necessary to get into medical school. Dr. Rice, we are going to cut to a quick break. We are talking to Dr. John Rice today about the importance of being a Catholic physician and what a Catholic physician has to offer. We'll be right back after the break with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. We are back with Dr. Doctor, the show where Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mulally are interviewing our guest, Dr. John Rice, pediatrician from South Bend, about faith matters, health matters all together. And today, we are going to shift from Dr. Rice talking about the importance of uh, the Catholic Medical Association and what it can do in the training of Catholic pre-medical students to some pediatric issues. That's his bailiwick. It's what he does every day. And there is a program that we've talked about before on the show called the Choosing Wisely program. And the American Academy of Pediatrics made some contributions to this. And we've chosen several of those to discuss with Dr. Rice. And one of those things they mentioned is that antibiotics should not be used for an apparent viral respiratory illness like sinusitis, throat pain and infection, bronchitis. Dr. Rice, do you agree with this? And if you do, why? I would certainly agree with that because antibiotics don't work against viruses. Antibiotics are designed to work against bacterial infections. So to use antibiotics in a situation where they're not needed only increases the risk of antibiotic resistance and the risk that down the road when antibiotics are truly needed, that they may not work because bacteria have developed resistance to them. So when you've got a parent in with a young child who they think or you think or you both think has an infection, how do you have that conversation that says, I don't think your child needs an antibiotic even if the parent wants one? Well, I think first of all it's important to recognize that antibiotics are not evil in themselves. They're they're very good things and they some of the, it's one of the tremendous advances that medicine has seen in the last 50, 60, 70 years is the development of antibiotics and the ability to prevent and treat infections. As we've done that, we've refined the ability to figure out which infections are bacterial, which infections are viral. And when we see an infection that's clearly viral, it's important not to use the antibiotics in, in previous years, people would sometimes prescribe antibiotics. They were seen as uh, benign and uh, uh, the answer to everything. And antibiotics were sometimes overprescribed and sometimes used just in case or just to prevent another infection from developing. But we found that that indiscriminate use tends to increase antibiotic resistance, which is becoming a greater problem. So how often so I, are you trying to persuade a parent to use an antibiotic versus persuading a parent not to use an antibiotic for their child? Um, I think in one sense, the, the patients that I see, particularly the ones that I see over and over again as part of my regular practice, are accustomed to our style of practice, and my partners have all made an effort to practice similarly so that the patients know what to expect, and they know that if I examine their child carefully and say, uh, this looks like it's a cold, I do not see any ear infection or throat infection or pneumonia or other focus of infection that would need antibiotics, then uh, they're generally comfortable with the idea that they leave without a prescription. You, you Sometimes know. when I when I see a, an actual infection, 
sometimes parents have become so worried about antibiotic use that sometimes I do have to have that discussion of what's the benefit of treating this infection, what's the risk of not treating the infection. Well, and you bring up a great point about infections that don't respond to antibiotics, ones that are caused by viruses. But, you know, this Choosing Wisely program, one of the things that it states, it says that cough and cold medicines should not be prescribed or recommended for respiratory illnesses in children under four years of age. Is, is that something that you would, you would uh, agree with and recommend? And that's, that is something that, that we practice in our office as well. And the reason behind that is that as these cough and cold medicines have been studied more, the, their effectiveness has been called into question. So, and then the other concern was that in a small number of children, these medicines could have very serious uh, side effects, sometimes life-threatening side effects. So when you take something that's not likely to make that much of a difference in the illness because the cold is going to get better anyway whether you treat with cold medicines or not and, and does have significant risk to the child, it doesn't balance out. So it makes more sense to treat the child conservatively using things like humidity for infants, uh, nasal suction and positioning, making sure that their fluid intake is adequate. Tylenol or ibuprofen if they do have fevers or pain, and allowing the illness to run its course and let the body's own defenses take care of it. So you wouldn't say that the children just have to suuffer necessarily. There's some other options that you've listed there that could be done instead no, of antibiotics. That's, yes, that's certainly what I would emphasize to parents is that there are things that they can do to make their child comfortable, things that we know will will make a difference, whereas the cold medicines probably don't make much difference and may cause side effects for the child. If you just joined us, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are discussing some pediatric pearls of wisdom with pediatrician John Rice from South Bend. A third thing that we noticed in the Choosing Wisely website from the American Academy of Pediatrics is that CT scans otherwise known as CAT scans, are not necessary in the immediate evaluation of minor head injuries, but clinical observation should be used. And yet they said here that approximately 50% of children who visit hospital emergency rooms with a head injury are given a CT scan, many of which may be unnecessary. Now, parents are worried to death, especially if it's their first child and they bump their head. How do you calm them down, and what is the right way to approach this so you don't miss something going on inside the head? The best way to approach that is the way to approach any medical problem, and that is with a careful history, a good thorough physical exam, and then an assessment of the, the problem and a, a careful decision based on the, the risks of, of anything serious being there. So with a with a minor head injury, uh, that is a child who's, who doesn't lose consciousness, it's not an injury, a fall from a great height, it's not a, an impact that would be expected to cause serious brain trauma. And if the child's exam is completely normal, studies have shown that the likelihood of having a serious injury inside the brain is extremely low. If you have enough injury inside the brain to be important, Generally, that will be reflected in the child's exam. And, and, um, and Dr. Rice, you bring up a great point that it will be reflected in the exam. You know, parents, they worry so much about head injuries, and, and I've gotten calls to that effect before. You know, what should I be watching for? What, what do you tell parents to watch for after a head injury to know if they may need to go in and get a CAT scan? Things that would be concerning would include any change in the child's mental status, that is, the child's awareness and uh, interaction uh, with the environment. And, and that has to be interpreted based on the age of the child. Younger children are sometimes harder to read, the little babies and infants, so those children may end up uh, needing medical evaluation. But an older child who's sitting up and, and walking and talking and just says, I've got a little headache, but I feel fine, probably doesn't need a, a CT scan. Um, in addition to looking at mental status, any focal signs if a child has numbness or weakness, loss of balance, 
dizziness, vomiting, difficulty with vision, basically any deviation from normal, especially as the injury evolves, um, if the child seems to be getting worse rather than better, that would be an indication to be seen. John, there's another point that they bring up in Choosing Wisely that somewhat surprised me. Maybe I don't understand it, but you'll illuminate me. And that is, they say that infant home apnea monitors should not be routinely used to prevent sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. Why? Wouldn't a good parent want to prevent their child from dying of SIDS? Uh, certainly everybody wants to prevent sudden infant death. Um, unfortunately, almost by definition, sudden infant death is an unexpected, unpredictable death of an infant. And as they've studied the use of apnea monitors, they found that apnea monitors neither predict nor prevent the sudden infant death events. That is, most of the infants who die of sudden infant death syndrome have not done anything previously to warrant closer scrutiny with a monitor or in any other way. And conversely, many of the infants who have what can be described as an apparent life-threatening event of where they choke or turn blue or gasp, many of those infants do not go on and have sudden infant death events. They often have some other reason for their initial presentation. So the apnea monitors do not seem to prevent the event, but they do tend to cause a tremendous amount of parental anxiety and family disruption because the monitors tend to go off very frequently. Uh, most of those alarms would be false alarms because the monitors are so sensitive. So it can be disruptive to the family's sleep pattern, disruptive to the baby's sleep pattern and activity pattern. And unfortunately, although we would love to have a tool that would prevent sudden infant death, unfortunately the use of the monitor doesn't seem to be able to do that. John, thank you for taking time out of your busy day to give us some pediatric pearls. We'll have to have you on again to discuss some more. The time flies when we're having fun. Uh, but this has been Dr. Doctor. Uh, we're going to take a break before our last quarter and come back for some fun information you might not expect to hear on a Catholic medical radio show. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. And in the beginning of this quarter of the show, we have the answer to the medical trivia question of the day, which, if you remember, was, what is the biblical name applied to the anatomic landmark known as the thyroid cartilage? Tom, could you tell us about this? I certainly can. The thyroid cartilage is that little protuberance, that thing that sticks out in the front of the neck, and it's more noticeable in men than in women. And there was an ancient belief that a piece of the forbidden fruit was embedded in, you guessed it, Adam's throat, thus given the name Adam's apple to this protuberance known as the thyroid cartilage. It's the cartilage on which the thyroid gland rests. Now, some people think that this is really a mistranslation uh, from a Hebrew term meaning the swelling of man because the Hebrew word for apple means also swollen and the Hebrew word for man is Adam. So it could be a swollen part in a man, or it could be because the apple got lodged there. But we don't even know it was the apple, if you read in Genesis. It was just a forbidden fruit. Now, in the American South, there's an interesting term given to this uh, anatomic landmark, and it's called the goozle. I've never heard of a goozle before. Have you, Andrew? Isn't that on the turkeys? They got the little red thing that hangs down. Isn't that the goozle? Uh that has another name that is eluding me at this moment <laughs> right now, but yeah, it's not particularly attractive. Another term besides thyroid cartilage is the laryngeal prominence. In other words, it's right in the front of the larynx, which is known as the voice box. And it's one of my never-ending pet peeves. 
for people who mispronounce this word as larynx. It's actually larynx. The Y comes before the N. And the larynx is typically larger in adult males, and it's considered a, a secondary um, sex characteristic, just like uh, facial hair in men would be a secondary sex characteristic. And that larger larynx gives rise to the lower voice that men have. So the deeper voice that men get as they go from adolescence to men is because of that larynx getting bigger and that thyroid cartilage or Adam's apple sticking out. So now you know the answer to today's trivia question. Now, in deference to our friends the cardiologists and one of my favorite terms from cardiology, which is an irregularly irregular heartbeat in <laughs> atrial fibrillation, we wanted to do the first episode of what we hope to be an irregularly irregular segment of this show called Medicine in the Movies. You're always happy when you catch this episode because it's usually a good one. And for the first one, you know, from my realm of the universe in uh, dermatology, there was an article published uh, in September of 2017 called Dermatologic Features of Classic Movie Villains. And so the question that these three dermatologists posed in putting together this article that was published in JAMA Dermatology, that's JAMA Journal of the American Medical Association, and their dermatology journal is, do Hollywood movies unfairly discriminate against people with skin diseases? And they looked at the list of the 10 greatest Hollywood movie heroes and villains as put together by a list of people in Hollywood who know more than we know, and they examined them for the presence or absence of visible skin diseases. This is a great study. It, it really cuts to the heart of, I think, what a lot of prejudices people subconsciously have. They don't even know why, but even from childhood, we're conditioned to associate certain features with villainous behavior. Yes, and it's really sad for those people who suffer with these diseases. And the findings were that six of the ten villains and exactly zero of the ten of the greatest heroes had significant scalp and or facial skin disease that were key parts of their characters, not just incidental, but key parts. So the, the uh, conclusion of this study is that movies do use skin disease to depict immorality or moral depravity. It makes me think of the idea in the Old Testament, which we all know is not how it works, that a curse or an illness or some medical ailment was the result of sin, the sin of yourself or the sin of your ancestors. We know that's not the case, but in ancient times, a lot of people felt that way, didn't they? Uh, they, they certainly did. Well, I mean, look at uh, leprosy. Uh, look at Jesus' disciples who said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And, and Jesus said, well, neither. It, it was so that the glory of God might be manifested. So some of the Skin diseases they looked at here that were used to represent fear and apprehension in a character were scars, significant scars, significant hair loss, dark circles around the eyes, a large bulbous oily nose, uh, warts, large moles on the face, some areas of white hair within otherwise normal colored hair, uh, albinism, and unnatural gray skin. Now, we think about you know, dark circles around the eyes. How common are they? What caused them? And why are they associated with evil? Well, in one study in India, uh, half of females 16 to 25 years old had these. And in half of them, it was just uh, apparently genetic. But when they looked, they saw that most of this was extra pigment in the middle layer of skin called the dermis, which is often from uh, frequent rubbing, which may be because they're itchy or they have... Um, childhood eczema. Is that where we would get even the idea of the allergic shiners, maybe? That's probably some of the same thing, I exactly. Or associated with stress. Some people rub their eyes when they have stress. The rubbing leads to a type of reaction in the skin, which can lead to more pigment being in there. Now, when they looked at these villains with skin findings, three of them had significant whole scalp or almost whole scalp baldness, what the article calls villainous alopecia, alopecia <laughs> being the medical term for hair loss. Now, I always thought that Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life 
I thought that he just liked a close shave, but it turns out <laughs> it was a skin disease. Yes, yes. He apparently had alopecia, alopecia totalis. And as we're discussing these movies, you have joined us on Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we discuss health matters because people matter. And right now we're discussing medicine in the movies. Uh, another bald character, of course, is Darth Vader, who not only when he removes his mask, at the end of The Return of the Jedi, has unnatural gray skin. He's got dark circles around the eyes. He's got significant scars and deep ritids. Ritid is the pleasant medical term for wrinkles, very deep-set wrinkles in his case. As well as the third character that was a great villain was Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. He had had significant alopecia. But one that really struck me is that between 1960 and 2006, one skin disease has been used 68 times to depict somebody evil, and that is albinism. Albinos have been unfairly targeted, in fact, to the point that the National Organization for Albinism has protested to Hollywood multiple times with virtually no success. I know that one cult a film that is beloved by homeschoolers, of which our family is one, is that of Princess Bride. And Princess Bride has an albino uh, Myrmidon in a dungeon, and the albino's whole purpose is to revive Wesley so that he can be to tortured even more than he was. Uh, other villains with skip skin findings include the Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard Oz, who has a wart on the right side of her chin and, of all things, has green skin. And I even noticed today that my smartphone, it even has a smiley face with green skin. How does that make sense? I don't know. I know how you get yellow skin. I know how you get pink skin. I know how you get red skin. I know how you get orange skin, green skin. I, I don't know where that comes from. We, we all know it belongs <laughs> to Wicked Witches of the West. That That's true. It, it is that signal... Uh, marker for that. I was I was very interested also in the finding of rhinophyma, which they mentioned the queen in Snow White uh, having this finding when she uh, disguises herself as the old woman. But I feel like I've seen that in many things in Hollywood, where the nose is bulbous and oily. Sometimes it's associated with many different conditions, one of which is alcoholism, but frequently it's attributed to the evil character. Yes, whereas it has nothing to do with alcohol. In one sense, it's it's bad luck. It's, it's part of the condition called rosacea, and uh, it's much more common in men than in women when it does happen. And there is treatment for that. In fact, I've even sculpted noses, taken off a lot of that extra oily skin to give it a more normal shape. And then the sixth of the ten villains uh, was Regan McNeil, who is the possessed girl in the movie The Exorcist. And only when she is possessed does she demonstrate multiple lacerations and scars on her face, as well as those dark circles around the eyes. Now, I find it interesting that when we look in the Bible, the devil tries to appear as an angel of light, neither disfigured nor diseased. I think he's figured out. Well, he's much more intelligent than we are. It's not more holy, but he's more intelligent. He knows this, that we do associate disfigurement with evil. It's probably why so many of the things that can lead to sin and depravity, nobody, as St. Thomas tells us, chooses something that appears bad. We right. only choose things that appear to be good, but it's from a lack of understanding or full appreciation of the situation that we may choose something that is not truly good. So the devil will not come dressed up like one of the evil villains from Hollywood. He'll probably come dressed up as someone else. Andrew Mullally, Thomist at large. <laughs> well, now we move into the heroes in the films, and only two of them have incidental scars. And they're incidental because they have nothing to do with the character. They're not there because of makeup. They're there because the actors who play the heroes happen to have them. And these two characters are Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, and Humphrey Bogart from the movie Casablanca. And it's interesting. The stories of most of their scars involve doctors. So Harrison Ford was apparently 20 years old, slammed his car into a telephone pole, got torn up on his face, and he says that the scar is the result of inept emergency surgery. It's got to be a resident. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bogart 
uh, gave many different stories, but the thing that seems to be common is that he sometimes had to escort prisoners when he was a young man in the Navy. And there are several stories he told of a prisoner in shackles whacking him with the shackles across the lip. And he said multiple times that a doctor screwed up the repair. Now, on the other hand, you have heroes who should have horrible skin disease, and they have none. For example, Lawrence of Arabia. T.E. Lawrence spends months or even years in the desert, yet his skin is incredibly fair, smooth, and unmarred by any dark coloration, sunburn, or increased blood vessels from all the sun damage. How does he do it? <laughs> and it's, it's a days before sunscreen. And then there's James Bond, the most dangerously living hero uh, of probably all these 10. I mean, there have actually been studies done on his alcohol intake per hour or per page in the books. And based on it, his liver should be pickled and on a shelf in the basement of some medical school. He <laughs> should have either cyanosis, blue skin, pallor, white skin, or jaundice, yellow skin, from all the liver disease that he should have. Yet, these heroes, quote-unquote, have no visible signs of skin disease. So my question is, do these movies drive the way we see skin disease? Does skin disease drive the way we see these heroes and villains? Or, as Andrew said at the beginning of the segment, do movies tap into prejudices that we fallible human beings already have? Regardless, skin disease is used in movies to depict evil and malevolence, and it probably won't end anytime soon. Well, thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor, where Catholic doctors discuss medical matters because people matter. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. And remember, your medical decisions today can have profound consequences tomorrow. So please choose wisely, choose Catholic. Tune in next week for another new episode of Dr. Doctor. Dr. McGovern and Dr. Stroud will talk with pediatrician Dr. Kathleen Birchelman about vaccinations and what Catholics should know to ethically keep their families healthy. Hear Dr. Doctor Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or catch up on past episodes anytime at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.